This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Church and State, a new dramedy about faith, politics, and the Twitter, packs plenty of humor raves Time Out New York. HuffPost calls it powerful. It's the play NPR wishes every member of Congress would see. Now performing at New World Stages, buy tickets at churchandstatetheplay.com. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. In 1961, Thomas Schelling's The Strategy of Conflict used game theory to radically re-envision the U.S.-Soviet relationship and establish the basis of international relations for the rest of the Cold War. Now, Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter, one of foreign policy's top 100 global thinkers and the first woman to serve as director of the State Department Office of Policy Planning, is applying network theory to develop a new strategic paradigm for the 21st century. She says that while chessboard-style competitive relationships still exist, many other situations demand that we look not at individual entities, but at their links to one another. Anne-Marie Slaughter outlines this new set of strategies in her latest book, The Chessboard and the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Networked World. Anne-Marie Slaughter is the president and CEO of New America, a think-and-action tank dedicated to renewing America in the digital age. She's also the Bert G. Kerstetter University Professor Emerita of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. From 2009 to 2011, she served as Director of Policy Planning for the U.S. State Department, the first woman to hold that position, earning her the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award and a place on Foreign Policy Magazine's list of the top 100 global thinkers. Prior to her government service, Dr. Slaughter was the Dean of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs from 2002 to 2009 and the J. Sinclair Armstrong Professor of International, Foreign, and Comparative Law at Harvard Law School from 1994 to 2002. Dr. Slaughter has written or edited eight books, including A New World Order, The Idea That Is America, Keeping Faith with Our Values in a Dangerous World, and Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family, which grew out of an article she wrote for The Atlantic titled Why Women Still Can't Have It All, which quickly became the most read article in the magazine's history. Dr. Slaughter is also a contributing editor to the Financial Times and writes a bi-monthly column for Project Syndicate. Today, she joins me for a wide-reaching conversation about international relations, current events like North Korea and Syria, and the sweeping dynamics driving our world in the 21st century. She talks about the old model of Cold War-era game theory and how the U.S. needs to employ more inclusive strategies to deal with an increasingly more complex and decentralized world. She discusses how criminal and terrorist networks are using this type of organization to great effect. She talks about the divide between open and closed societies as the new capitalism versus communism, and how America first might make a good slogan, but it's a terrible strategy in the age of globalization. She also discusses her time in the State Department, what she learned working for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and what might have been if her old boss was the person in the Oval Office right now. Coming up with Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter in just a moment. 
Anne-Marie Slaughter is president and CEO of New America. Prior to that, she was the first woman to serve as director of the State Department Office of Policy Planning under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, leading to her being listed on Foreign Policy Magazine's Top 100 Global Thinkers from 2009 to 2012. She formerly served as dean of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, and her previous books have included A New World Order and Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family, which was named one of the best books of 2015 by The Washington Post, The Economist, and NPR. Now she has a new book called The Chessboard and the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Networked World. Anne-Marie Slaughter, thanks for talking to me. It's my pleasure. Well, in your book, you advise global leaders to look beyond the old chessboard model of nation-state rivalries, the old type of gamesmanship, diplomacy, and focus more on what you call the web. I'm assuming you don't mean the World Wide Web. No. What kind of web are we talking about here? <laughs> well, the first thing I'd say is you got to do both, because I'm not saying the chessboard is gone. If okay. you look at uh, the United States and North Korea, the United States and China and Russia, chessboard politics are still very much with us, but it's only half the picture. And mm-hmm. the web uh, is the vastly interconnected and growing set of networks. When you think about that, think about criminal networks to begin with, terrorist networks. Uh, We know one reason terrorism is so hard to fight is because it's a networked form. It's kind of whack-a-mole, right? You knock it, you take out one node, another pops up. Any global criminal networks trafficking in people or drugs or arms, uh, those are all networks, money laundering, Uh, But then corporate networks, Uh, global supply chains really are uh, much more horizontal networks of of, uh, really co-creators and participants in corporate networks, Uh, civic networks of all kinds when we have a global disaster. Those are non-governmental organizations and charities that are all connected around Mm -hmm. the world. And then just citizen uh, networks and uh, networks of other kinds of organizations, churches, et cetera. And my point is, we don't have strategies for how to work in that world. So I guess what you're saying in some ways is that you would be using the latter type of network as a solution to the former type of networks that we're talking about. That's exactly right. When we when we look at networked threats, uh, we know, in theory, that you need a network to beat a network. But what kind of network? Because it's not enough just to connect people. If you even think about uh, even social media, right? You're connected to lots of different people. Could you get them to do something you needed them to do? Could mm-hmm. you have them organized to uh, actually engage in a task? Or if you wanted to scale up a solution, it's not just enough to connect people. So... One of the advantages, the examples I use is the way in which Stan McChrystal, who was the uh, right. head of uh, special forces in Iraq and had to fight al-Qaeda in Iraq, he describes how he took his special forces, who were hierarchically organized, and turned them into a very specific kind of network called a team of teams. Getting more into the nitty-gritty of that model, what did he do right? Well, he he starts by showing that even though special forces are very nimble, they still, you know, all took orders from him. And Mm -hmm. each one was in a pod or, you know, a a small group uh, very close. So what he did was two things. One, he made sure that 
everyone was connected to everybody else once a day for communication purposes. So he literally had a call with thousands of people on the call every morning. But then when it came time for operations, the people divided back up into small groups, but every single group was connected to other mm -hmm. groups. So that was, each group was a team, but each team was connected to all the others. And that's the team of teams. Mm -hmm. And how do you apply this to not just statecraft, but other networks that are useful in this globalized world? Well, you're right to point out that that I, I talk about statecraft and webcraft. Mm -hmm. And if you were in the government, you would be thinking, for instance, about how to build networks of women or of scientists or technologists or universities, lots of ways the government could use these tools. But let's say you are a CEO and you are thinking about uh, how to build resilience in your supply chain, just as a mm -hmm. kind of important idea. Yeah. Well, then you'd need what we call a distributed network. You would not want to have one or two big nodes that everything else is connected to, because if one of those gets knocked out, everything gets knocked out. So instead, you need something that looks much more like a mesh where a couple nodes can go down, but everything else will stay up. And you say that you were inspired to write this book when you were in the State Department working under Hillary Clinton. Um, did you take that opportunity to become something of a student or a master of the great game? And, <laughs> and what did you learn in that process? Well, I think coming in, I was already a big fan of network thinking. It's part of the reason she hired me. I had written a, an article about how the United States was the most connected nation and that if we thought about the United States that way and used those connections, we could uh, enhance our power. I will say that what I discovered is that most of the things that hit the headlines are chessboard issues because they're crises mm -hmm. and at least quick crises like global warming or climate change. That's a that's a crisis, but it's but slowly it's a network yeah. issue. But most of the things when you have a crisis with Russia or if there was a coup in Honduras or, or early on, we had the reset with Russia or China does something you don't like or Iran, Iran's nuclear program. That's a chessboard issue. Mm -hmm. The networks are the longer term thinking. And frankly, Secretary Clinton kept talking about in making development issues. So that's poverty, education, food security, water security, global crime. Those issues are more development issues. And that's where the network th thinking can really come in. Mm -hmm. And that's where long term strategic foreign policy work would build in those networks so that when you have the crisis, you have yeah. better tools. Yeah, I was just going to say the chessboard model seems to more address flare ups. Yes. But uh, the network process is encompassing much more of a long term strategic vision to hopefully get us to a point where we won't have so many flare-ups exactly. and chessboard issues. Exactly. Or if we do, we've got other tools. So for instance, mm -hmm. if you knew the Arab Spring was coming, and we did, we didn't know exactly did we? when. We did. We did. I mean, Secretary of State Condi Rice in 2004 went to Cairo and said, you know, we can't just keep propping up uh, dictatorships. Sooner or later, they're going to crumble. Uh, and frankly, uh, President Obama knew, knew that with that many young people, you were going to have yeah. turbulence. But we could have built networks of young 
entrepreneurs, networks of different youth groups, uh, networks of people in universities, and frankly, even religious networks, so that when the crisis hit, we had more ability to engage with the people and not just the government. Mm -hmm. And I was interested to read in the book that you're not saying that the chessboard model is outdated or is a relic of the 20th century. Um, because I would think that perhaps it's counterproductive to deal with such serious issues that make the difference between war and peace, poverty and prosperity as a quote unquote game. <laughs> well, I, I would agree with you. And, uh, but I, I will say that when you have a dictator like Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea or Vladimir Putin, for that matter, and they operate by provocation or simply mm -hmm. assertion of interests and you, you it gets to a crisis when we say it's a game it's not that it's that it's not serious it's deadly it's serious it's a strategic game it's strategic sure. game it's game theory it's are we are we playing chicken yeah. <laughs> in which case one of us that's you know that's what we're doing with north korea right now mm -hmm. we're playing chicken it's not it's not play, it's serious, yeah. but it's chicken. Or do we have a common interest here? So in the United States and Russia in the Cold War, we both wanted to lower nuclear arsenals because we both did not want the world to blow up. Mm -hmm. But how did we get to cooperation when there was so much distrust and we pursued a strategy called tit for tat, where mm -hmm. you do something bad, I hit you back, you do something good, I reward you over time, we build a little trust. Uh, and my point is we have those strategies for conflict, we don't have strategies of connection. This network model of addressing world issues, would it be fair to say that it's less of a zero-sum game than the chessboard model where you have powers who are constantly vying to one-up each other for strategic advantage? Yes. I think one of the, the key points about the wor the networked world we're in, it's not that there isn't advantage or disadvantage, or and there's plenty of power. Power in a networked world comes from the center, but it is a much more diffuse situation. It's hard to figure out who the winners and losers are often, and overwhelmingly, there's a common interest. Again, think about climate change or tackling water issues or even making a country more resilient to attack, right? If you're Ukraine and you're next to Russia, you want to build resilience in that border area. Uh, you want, or if you are next to a weak state, you want to stabilize that state. Those are much more common interests, and that's where networks are connecting lots of people who have the same interests and doing it in a way that allows them to actually accomplish a common goal. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about using, for lack of a better word, good networks to combat yes. bad networks, like, for instance, using it for counterterrorism. Is there a way to apply this to the proliferation of disinformation and quote-unquote <laughs> fake news right now? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because I've been thinking about that. Uh, so one of the things to realize is, again, how different networks serve different purposes. So you could say Donald Trump, or for that matter, WikiLeaks, <laughs> has a very effective network uh, in the sense of, of what I would call a star network. One hub, lots and lots and lots of nodes. So when Donald Trump tweets, he goes out to 26 million followers. That's roughly half his voters. That's a big chunk, you know, 10% of the American, well, more, uh, less, of the American population. Um, that works very well for dissemination, mm -hmm. very well. But it actually doesn't work well 
uh, if he wants people to do something. So if he wanted to get uh, his repeal of Obamacare passed, he could tweet all he wanted. There was no way to create action out of that network. For that, you need, again, a pod network. You need lots of different groups, each of whom are connected to each other, and then they're all connected to a central hub. He didn't have that. If you're pushing back on fake news, that fake news tends to come from one center, maybe from a couple centers, but it's it's one hub and lots of nodes. How do you push back on it? Here's one way. You, you look at Facebook, you realize that a lot of people are getting news from people they trust. That's mm. the way it works. You figure out what those groups are and who the centers of those groups are, and you work with those folks, either by algorithm or actually, to knock down a lot of the fake news. But it's a different form okay. of network. And I have to ask, since we talked about Trump, how does one reconcile the type of foreign policy that you're talking about in this book, this idea of wanting to be an open society and yeah. more connected with the president's policy of America first and things like threatening to back out of trade deals? Yes. So in a networked world, uh, the divide is exactly between those states who want to be open and those states who want to be closed. And I argue that the closed states will be the ultimate losers because you get value from from being connected to others from flows across networks. Now, that does not mean completely open. That's crazy. You can't just open your borders and, and open your trade. Uh, but it does mean that where are the states that want to close things down? Again, Russia c- controls the internet, controls uh, uh, people who come in and out, China, North Korea, Cuba until recently. The United States cannot be in that camp. We have to stand for openness. But what I think the 2016 election has pointed out is you can only be open to the world if you're taking care of your own citizens first, that it it cannot become a trade-off. And many Americans see it as it's us versus them. (laughs) Whereas I would say, no, we've got to take care of Americans first uh, in ways that, that that actually connect them to the prosperity that comes from trade uh, and from information flows and other and finance flows. And this idea of open versus closed, is that sort of the digital age equivalent of capitalism versus communism during the Cold War? Yes. Uh, and it's interesting there, too. Uh, remember, you know, the Soviet Union actually put up walls, right? I, I, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> yeah. the Ber- Berlin Wall, which is why— but they also I, paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, I mean, we don't want to, to have, you know, the symbol of the United States uh, be a wall— Uh, But then it was communism versus capitalism or dictatorship versus democracy. I think increasingly it's going to be who can be open to the world and benefit from being open for everyone Mm -hmm. or at least a vast majority of citizens and who actually maintains power by closing off uh, their country uh, from the rest of the world. We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Dr. Anne-Marie Slaughter when we come back in just a minute. If you're interested in my conversation with Anne-Marie Slaughter, then you should check out her new book, The Chessboard and the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Networked World. And right now you can download the audio version of her book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. 
Just go to audibletrial.com slash kickassnews for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be The Chessboard and the Web by my guest today, Anne-Marie Slaughter, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. And I had this conversation with Richard Haas the other day, and I asked him, and I'll ask you the same thing, you know, throughout the 20th century, it seems that the choice between chaos or order has often been the choice between chaos and oppression. Those were the choices we were given with Saddam Hussein and various dictators in Latin America, more recently of Syria. What is the third option at this point? Well, I'm not sure any of us have an uh, absolute answer. As I look at it, I see that what digital technology has has enabled is the ability for much more decentralized power so that cities and counties and provinces will increasingly be able to govern and provide for themselves in terms of solving problems on a much more local basis, but then be connected to each other in something bigger. And in a way, when you look at the European Union and you see Catalonia wanting to secede and Scotland wanting mm-hmm. to secede and Belgium, which is, has fallen apart, some of what is happening there is people are saying, hey, we can take care of our own as long as we're part of this bigger market, which is why right. Scotland wants to stay part of, part of the EU. So uh, I think the, the order is less likely to be established f- from a big central federal government, uh, which really controls, and and you're right, can be tyranny. Uh, You need order, but that is more likely to come, again, with smaller centers, but then those centers have to be, those centers of government have to be connected to each other. So really network forms of government uh, in ways that we simply couldn't do uh, 300 years ago. That, that's interesting because that's similar to something that Parag Khanna said to me recently um, when we were talking about his proposal for technocracy in America yeah. and yeah. the beauty of systems like Singapore, where there's very much a bottom-up approach yes. to democracy. Well, I, and you know, actually, if you read De Tocqueville, that is America, yeah. right? I mean, it's right. all these civic groups. It's all this sort of can-do people figuring it out. Uh, and then what we had to do was to kind of combine all that in a federal structure. We had a central mm-hmm. government, but we had 50 or 13 originally, uh, state governments. And I think what I see now is the pendulum swinging much more to the states, to the Mm -hmm. cities. You know, to go back to climate change, even in the Paris Agreement, there are 7,000 mayors who are are part of the, the climate change agreement, and they can do things in their cities that will probably never get done at the mm-hmm. federal level. But again, if you connect them and you connect them right, you get the same... Uh, power, you just get it from many smaller entities, not Mm -hmm. just one big one. And that's interesting, because that's a surprisingly, uh, maybe not conservative, but libertarian shift that you're proposing as a a former Clinton appointee. Well, it's (laughs) funny. Uh, It's it's a definitely a federalist. I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. That sounds a lot like Jefferson, the states, the cities. But again, 
he was imagining all of them on their own. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, no, 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 they need to be connected. They need to be within a framework. I'm certainly not getting rid of a federal government, but I'm saying you can devolve power Mm -hmm. much further and still kind of cabinet and constrain it and stop it if necessary by using a networked form. Mm -hmm. And, And this overarching strategy that you propose in the book for international order is based on these three pillars of open society, open government, and an open international system. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, open society means a democracy, right? right? I mean, that, that, that indeed, back to the Cold War, we were the open society, they were the closed society. So that one, I think, is, is just so. means liberty and, and accountability and participation. Open government is something that the Obama administration uh, pushed alongside Brazil and 60 other governments, which means you transparent government, participatory government, and accountable government. Now, that doesn't have to be a democracy. I would say that in many ways, Singapore, for instance, is fairly transparent. It's participatory in various ways. Uh, It is accountable. It could be more participatory, but it's, it's pretty open. An open international order, this is, I think, the thing that is hardest for people to grasp, but it's not realistic to assume in 2045 that the world is going to be run by the powers who won World War II. It's just not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, imagine in 1915 being run by, well, the, the world was run by the powers of 1815, and there was a massive yeah. world war. So yeah. we don't want that solution. <laughs> uh, so I think you have to be open to power shifts. Um, if the United Nations can't make room for new powers, then the United Nations will be increasingly irrelevant and will go to regional organizations. Uh, you need to make room for India and Brazil and South Africa and lots of other nations. At the same time, you need to make room for other actors, web actors, not states. You know, when you have or substates, California is the sixth largest economy in the world. 40 million people, that's bigger than most of the countries in Europe. The California government and the mayors of the cities have to be able to play a role in the world, Mm -hmm. as do the biggest corporations are far more powerful than small countries. So when I talk about an open international order, I'm saying states are still really important. They're not going anywhere. But there are we need to make room for more states and we need to make room for web actors uh, because we've got problems we have to solve and it's going to take everybody. And I'd be curious how this applies specifically to North Korea right now. You know, there seems to be an increasing willingness on the part of the Trump administration to go it alone, either potentially through direct diplomatic talks with North Korea or, if need be, unilateral military action. Is that one area where there may be a decreasing patience with this type of network model of working with China toward a resolution? Well, this one is more, yes, in the sense of multilateral versus diplomacy, which is what we've we've done, which is, again, a way of trying to cooperate in the chessboard world. It's mm-hmm. a way of getting a, uh, a, a, a number of nations to put pressure on one. I think what President Trump is doing is trying to signal loud and clear to the North Korean government that the game has changed. Mm-hmm. 
and that for 20 years under Republicans and Democrats, essentially they have gotten concessions from us by selling the same commitment over and over and over again, which is to stop uh, work on their nuclear program. And obviously they haven't done it. And so Secretary Clinton would have changed the game too. And she said we had to get much tougher. This is a very scary, risky uh, venture, but essentially the administration is trying to force the North Korean government to recognize, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I really better negotiate, and this time it's got to be for real. Yes, but the Clinton administration was also the group that tried out basketball diplomacy with uh, yes. <laughs> with Kim Jong-il, yes. the elder. Uh, in retrospect, how, how well would you say that worked? No, it didn't work. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this is one where I do think this is a power game. Mm. This is a straight power game, and the stakes are very high. And as much as I am nervous about the outcome, I do think that the Trump administration understands that either we change the game or we learn to live with a nuclear country on an extremely strategic and important peninsula that is shared by one of our closest allies across the water from another one of our closest allies. Uh, and that's not a world we want to contemplate, but time is running out to change things. And speaking of changing games, Trump got a lot of praise from people, including yourself, for the Syria airstrikes. What would you like to see as the next step from the U.S. with regard to Syria? What I would like to see is actually that strike become a doctrine in the mm -hmm. sense that I do not think that we should try to win Syria's civil war. I do not think we should send in troops on the ground. I do think we should be saying to Assad, okay, it's your country, you can fight a civil war, but you, you cannot fight it with chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. You cannot fight it by gross crimes against humanity. Uh, you can't fight it with genocide or ethnic cleansing. That's a fairly limited doctrine. It says we'll do exactly what we did. You use chemical weapons again, we'll strike, limited strike, but we'll, we will continue, we'll, we'll take out more planes, we'll crater your runways. I would actually do the same thing on barrel bombs because he's commit, committing gross crimes against humanity. But fundamentally, I would, I would make clear we're not going to win the war, we're not gonna take sides, but we're gonna, we're gonna stand on how you fight. I think if we did that enough, he, this is putting pressure on him and on Russia to get to a diplomatic solution. And that is the only chance for Syria, is a brokered political deal. Well, as someone who was in President Obama's State Department, I'd be curious to get your perspective on why we didn't put some teeth into the red line on Syria when Assad used chemical weapons. Well, I think it was a, a, a grave mistake. Uh, and indeed, I, I think the this is one where I think the Obama administration looked at it as a chessboard issue and said, we don't really, we don't have a direct interest there. I mean, Israel's mm -hmm. okay, Turkey's okay, Saudi Arabia's okay, they're our allies. We regret this, but we are not directly affected. I think we were directly affected because of terrorist networks and refugees. Mm -hmm. But I think in answer to your specific question, President Obama thought he was getting a deal to take chemical weapons out, and that was better than using force. I think he sent the message that we would not use force under any circumstances because mm. he had drawn this red right. line. The rest of the world expected something. And that's not a good message to send in a world that is still a chessboard <laughs> world. You've got some really nasty characters yeah. out there, and they have to know that you mean, you're willing to stand up and use force if you, if you have to. 
Well, we're 100 days into the Trump presidency. I have to ask, do you give much thought to the the sort of sliding doors alternative universe that might have been if Hillary Clinton was the person in the White House right now dealing with these issues? Well, <laughs> I'm not a might have been person. I'm, yeah. I'm a look ahead and get it done person. But I think on on some issues like the Syrian strikes, I think she'd have done the same thing. I mm-hmm. think she might not do exactly the same thing on Syria, on uh, North Korea, but she she would have really pushed much harder. Uh, w- the biggest difference, I think, is that there, America First isn't a strategy; it's a slogan. Yeah, uh, it is a political slogan. And it's one that many countries can understand in many different ways. We need a strategy. And and particularly, again, in a world order where if we're not leading, then the countries that are leading are going to create a world we don't really want to live in. And so I understand the American people's sense of why should we have to bear every burden for uh, and, and be global policemen. But I think Secretary Clinton had this understanding that when the United States is not at the table, we end up with a worse world, and then sooner or later we're going to have to come back in. And I would like to see this administration not just do things, but articulate mm-hmm. a real strategy for what are our goals and how are we going to achieve yeah. them. So you don't think about what high position you might have had in her administration? I do not. I do not. I, <laughs> okay. I'm, uh, I'm, re- well, I'm working on renewing America at this point. <laughs> um, I'd be curious, what was the most valuable thing you learned either from her directly or while you were working in the State Department, would you say? I said at the end of my time there that she had taught me more than I taught her, and I said it somewhat ruefully because I had come in as a Princeton professor who'd studied foreign (laughs) policy for 20 years, and that was not her expertise. But what she taught me was the importance of focusing on people on the ground. So go back to Syria and imagine how you would feel if your country had been destroyed, Mm -hmm. your family members had been killed from barrel bombs from the air, Uh, you're cold and miserable and living in a refugee camp for 20 years, those issues matter. It's hard to see them from the chessboard perspective because what you see is just a country and you see how big it is and how powerful it is. Secretary Clinton saw the people too. And that's often, as I said, development or stabilization or reconstruction. But I came away feeling that we have to pay attention to what happens to the people just as much as we have to pay attention to power games. And this book on strategic networks is really about whom do you connect and how to work at that level as well as that government-to-government level. Before we go, you're also the president of the New America Foundation, and I'm always so interested in the kind of issues that you deal with there because it seems to be sort of a think tank for the 21st century. In some cases, you're addressing very cutting-edge issues, 
And in some cases, you're dealing with old issues, but in cutting edge ways. I find it fascinating. Uh, tell us a little bit more before we go about what New America does. Well, thank you. Uh, and I, I do feel very lucky, actually, to be running an organization. Our mission is renewing America in the digital age. And you put your finger on it. We work on problems that are created uh, by digital technology. It's great for many reasons, but it's hugely disruptive and a lot of people have their lives upended. Or we work on older problems where there are there's a whole new solution set because of mm -hmm. digital technology. And what we're we're focusing on now is really bottom-up change. And again, it's a network. We're trying to build a network of national renewal by working in different cities where the solutions are not going to come from a think tank. You can't figure this out in your head and write a paper and <laughs> then pass a law. You have to try. Think about our schools. Really, we're going to figure out figure this out often by lots of different groups trying lots of different things, working with school boards, charter schools, public schools, even private schools, reinventing how we educate our children. That's bottom-up change. Mm -hmm. So back to that Federalist point, New America still believes strongly that you can do important things at the federal government level, and we fight for policies on open technology, for instance. But we also really believe that in America's best tradition, a lot of that change is coming from the bottom up. A lot of it uh, is tech, but also people. And we're trying to stick that, to stitch that together and broadcast mm -hmm. a very different story. Yeah, I, I really do find it so fascinating, the kind of issues that you're addressing there. Remind me again, is it newamerica.org? It's newamerica.org. Okay, for absolutely. anyone who wants to check yes, it out, newamerica.org. And again, the book is called The Chessboard in the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Networked World. Anne-Marie Slaughter, thanks so much for joining me. I've had a great time. Thanks again to Anne-Marie Slaughter for joining me on the podcast. You can order her book, The Chessboard in the Web, Strategies of Connection in a Networked World on Amazon, or download the audio version for free at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. And follow Dr. Slaughter on Twitter at at Slaughter AM. Also, be sure to visit the New America Foundation, where she's president and CEO, at newamerica.org. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews or click on the donate button at KickAssNews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.